This is the Gender Justice Brief, a podcast of gender justice. We fight for gender equity by breaking down legal, structural, and cultural barriers and expanding protections. We want to see all people thrive, regardless of their gender, gender expression, and sexual orientation. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Gender Justice Brief. I'm your host, Erin Hart, Communications Director at Gender Justice. And it has been a super long time since we had the other Erin, the first Erin, the original Gender Justice Erin's, Erin May Quaid, our special projects advisor on the pod. Hey, Erin, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Always glad to be here. And Jess Braverman, our legal director. Hey, Jess. Hey, everyone. Hey, Erin and Erin. Hi, Jess. It's Jess and the Erin's. In fact, we should rename the podcast. Jess um, and the Erin's. It's just, it's you know, Erin, I, I don't, th- have we like presented anything together like anytime recently? You and I? Yeah. No, it's been a minute. It's been a minute. It's sad. It's been a minute. We do. I'm glad we have the excuse today to bring the band back together. (laughs) But also, I think we will have some upcoming events uh, when the SCOTUS chats happen, when the U.S. Supreme Court decides 303 Creative versus Elenis. That could be as soon as tomorrow. It was not today. Yeah. We'll bring you back to that. But today, today we're talking about it's insane, but it's been one year since Roe was overturned and the Dobbs decision threw our country into chaos. So that's why we're here. Let's go back to the Supreme Court leak on May 3rd, or I think it was May 2nd. I'm not sure, but my notes say May 3rd, 2022. What were you all feeling that day? What happened and what conversations do you remember having with people about it? I'll start because I think mine is just, it was like this like wild moment. The first thing to know is that those of us who listened to the arguments in December were not surprised by the leak at all. I think for a while before the Supreme Court heard the case, we were thinking they're going to find a way to ban abortion without overturning Roe. They're not going to say it, but they're going to find a gutting the Voting Rights Act, something like that. After we heard the oral arguments, we were like, oh, no, they're just going to overturn Roe v. Wade and they're going to do it pretty brazenly. And so when the leak happened, I was six days postpartum. I had just given birth. I was and I had been hospitalized, rehospitalized with preeclampsia, postpartum preeclampsia. So I had just come home from the hospital. I was literally nursing my baby who was like six days old. And spent a lot of time on my phone while nursing baby. There's not a lot to do. And I just happened to be on Twitter and it came up. And I was like holding my phone in my right hand, cradling my baby to my boob in my left hand. And I kept looking at the phone and then looking at my daughter and then looking at the phone and looking at my daughter. And I was just thinking, oh, what did I, what did we do? I brought her into this world. And now she, it was just like this whole existential crisis of something that I knew was coming. And that we had been preparing for. I'd been part of the movement to prepare for this moment. But I had a total like existential crisis in that moment. I just felt guilty and awful and gut punched. It was a hard day. How about you, Des? I seem to remember you were like growling or on a plane. Yeah, I think for the leak. So I was actually on the plane on the way back from an abortion conference. (laughs) 
And at some point on the flight, like a text came through. I guess I forgot to put my phone in airplane mode. Oops. And it was from you, Aaron. It was like you, Megan, you and Megan being like, oh, my God, the Dobbs leak. And I was like, what? And then it was hard to believe, but I was on the plane, so I couldn't actually access it. So I was just sitting there on the plane, like waiting to land so I could read this leak because it's it sounded I'd never heard of that happening before. Unreal. Like a SCO- yeah. yeah, like a SCOTUS opinion leaking. So I was like, maybe it's deep fake. Maybe it- who knows? So yeah. I was basically just antsy on a plane, like waiting to land. Until I, I read it, I was like, it's a, I, I thought it was like an oral leak. Like someone said something to send. So then I was like, oh, but there's a document. And then Jess, you had to like, dig through the opinion. Yeah. Like immediately so, upon landing. So Erin is like a brilliant... Like if Erin were an attorney, I'd hire her onto the legal team in a second. But I was like, let me read like no, I have no doubt that Erin's right about how she's like portraying this. But let me just read it for myself. Do my like due a diligence. real lawyer should read it. Yeah. Like I think of you as a real lawyer, but I was like, yeah, let me do my due diligence, read this opinion. And I was just like, oh, my God. And so I think we did a conference call while I was at the airport, mm-hmm. like waiting for my bags. So, yeah. 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 Yes. I had just started gender justice and had only worked here for two weeks and was like very happy. But then put my kids to bed, looked at my phone and was like, oh, this is so weird. There are all these like missed calls and texts from the people I work with. What's up with these people? And then I saw what happened and it made sense. So yeah, we fast forward to June 24th and it seems like the leak in some respects, really did prepare us for the decision. Jess, do you recall, like, the leaked opinion and the actual opinion that came out were basically the same, right? Or Yeah, yeah. There were questions like who leaked it, which apparently no one knows. But, like, I had a theory. We all have our, we all have our theories. I, like, really want to hear Aaron's theory. But I think that is it, like, you leak it, then they see there's outrage and they change it, or they leak it. And then it's they can't be seen as capitulating. So now it's going to be like set in stone. Like now no one can change their mind because if you leak it, there's outrage. And then the opinion change changes. I don't know. Exposes SCOTUS for, let's be honest, what it is, right? They're a political entity and not like a court that's calling balls and strikes. And But it would make it too obvious. So the question is, can it change after a leak like that? So to this day, supposedly no one but EMQ knows who leaked it. My my theory is that it wasn't intentional, but never chuck up to malice what can be explained by incompetence. And I think there's a reason why Politico got the story. And the two reporters on the story, one is a national security reporter. So my theory is that somebody left it in a coffee shop on a subway somewhere and they were like, they picked it up. They were like, oh, this is what this is. The only reporter I know is a national security reporter at Politico. So I've given them this copy. and that. So that's my theory. Oh, interesting. I like it. I like that theory. Yeah, having worked in the federal government for like years before this, there was a fair amount of incompetence. Yeah. So yeah. the kind of um, mistake that would never happen at gender justice, let's be clear. Like we don't leave our drafts out on the subway or who's printing drafts? Erin, I'm I'm 40 years old. I occasionally print a draft. I love a paper copy, don't get me wrong, but I can't edit on paper like I can on a computer. 
Oh, see, I print every press release before I hit send oh, because that's yeah. smart. We're in the I'm also entered my 40s. Yeah, we're in the 40 and up club. We like paper copies. I we don't like these newfangled apps. I got three more years before I'm printing all yeah. my papers. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So just had you had your printed copy of <laughs> Delta Airlines print me out a copy. It was great. Yeah. And so there went our federal right to abortion. Jess, can you give us a brief recap of what was like what was the established framework? What were the legal protections that Roe actually provided? So Roe basically was there was, there was Roe and then there was Planned Parenthood v. Casey and things shifted a bit. So Roe basically said there's like a constitutional right to abortion, but it wasn't it had some caveats attached. There was a trimester framework like the state cannot regulate at all in the first trimester. They can do some regulating in the second trimester but and in the third trimester, anything goes like you can ban it. Then came Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which kind of changed things around a bit. And it basically... At the time of Dobbs, up until Dobbs came down, what the rule was like, abortion is like constitutionally protected until viability. After viability, there can be a ban. And oh, sorry, Roe had the viability framework too. I'm overcomplicating it. Like, but basically there was like, Roe had like trimesters and viability. Planned Parenthood v. Casey was just like, we're just going to do this viability thing. So before viability, states could regulate abortion, but they could not ban it. And viability was considered like around, I think, like 24 weeks. And then after viability, there could be bans. And so that was what was going on at the time that Dobbs came down. What happened was that Mississippi passed a 15-week ban that was so like blatantly unconstitutional that even the notoriously conservative Fifth Circuit was like, we can't let you do this. This is a pre-viability ban. They brought it to SCOTUS and they wanted to argue that they should be allowed to ban abortion at 15 weeks rather than having to wait till viability. But what happened in the meantime was that the makeup of, the, of SCOTUS changed. They realized they could probably get Roe overturned altogether with the current makeup of the court. And so they made the argument to just overturn Roe entirely and they were successful, which I think is the idea that like if we leak the opinion and change it will be seen as political. This is literally we get it. We gain a conservative justice. Now we're like upending the constitutions. But that's like roughly what happened. Yeah, they packed the court and they were able to take away constitutional rights. I do think it's important to know that, you know, even though we had Roe and Planned Parenthood v. Casey and it was all about like when you can ban a regulated abortion, the anti-abortion movement just did it in different ways, right? They passed all of these laws that criminalized providers and put all of these onerous, extra, unnecessary restrictions in place to, to restrict access to care, right? So they're like, if we can't ban abortion, we'll just target the people who provide care. And the places that they provide care with so much violence and criminal penalties and all of these things that it'll make people not want to provide anyway. And in the interim, right, between Roe and Dobbs, it was chip away at access to abortion so that functionally... It was as if it was banned. So there were a lot of states where, yes, abortion is now banned, but it is not any harder to get than it was before because it was impossible to get almost. Yeah. So the idea behind Roe was like, and then Casey was like before viability, you can't like you're not supposed to be doing things just to ban it or make it impossible. You're supposed to be doing things that are like the way you would regulate healthcare. But the states would do these ridiculous things, right? For example, they would say you need 
to have any physician who provides an abortion needs to have admitting privileges at a hospital within 20 miles of the clinic, even though abortion is really safe. There's a really low risk of complication, like lots of outpatient procedures take place like without that requirement. And so the real purpose would be, and then they would know, right, either there is no hospital within 20 miles or the hospitals are mostly Catholic, the religious hospitals, and they would never allow um, abortion to be provided there. So it would functionally shut down the clinics and then you'd have to litigate that. So there, all of the restrictions were supposed to be like typical, like protecting health, whatever, but they were actually just meant to obstruct abortion access and they were successful. I think now were those, what are the trap laws? That was something that I feel like I kept hearing in some initial reading. Those are targeted regulations on abortion providers. I believe that's what TRAP stands for. And it's basically like all these like little things where abortion providers are singled out from other healthcare providers for restrictions. So there's like felony penalties, whereas like other physicians just have the risk of malpractice claims or loss of licensure. Abortion providers for doing the exact same type of thing were at risk of going to prison. There would be like data reporting requirements, like little like weird regulations on abortion clinics that would make it impossible for the clinics to stay open, stuff like that. Yeah, and I think it's important to note, too, that all of these targeted, these trap laws fed into the narrative that abortion was this false narrative that abortion is dangerous and it's really like scary. Right. So some of the laws are like your clinic has to have hallways wide enough for a surgery for a hospital bed and a gurney and you have to have an ambulance bay. Right. And it fed into this narrative that abortion is dangerous when it's not. And so having a doctor have to have hospital admitting privileges, in addition to just associating now abortion with hospitals, but like my dentist doesn't have to have hospital admitting privileges to extract teeth, but tooth extraction is more dangerous than abortion care. And so it's no hospital, even if they were like fine with people providing abortion care there, is going to give a doctor hospital admitting privileges because those are for people who perform medical procedures in a hospital, right? And so it just, these kinds of things not only pushed care out of reach, but they really furthered this anti-abortion movement narrative about abortion. And that's one of the most, that's one of the hardest things to undo in addition to the stigma was the like false understanding that people have about abortion, its safety and how common it is. And Erin, I know you've been participating and you work a lot with like national partners and other state organizations. What is your understanding of the national landscape for abortion care? I think one of the things that we have seen is that the number of abortions have gone down, but not by as many as they predicted. So people still are accessing abortion care. Medication abortion is more widely available. Some states have, quote unquote, only banned it up to six weeks so people can still maybe get care there. I think one of the things that that definitely people in the reproductive rights, health and justice movement could have foreseen, but maybe people are just learning, is that when you can't separate out abortion care from the rest of pregnancy care. So the impact to pregnant people, whether they're trying to stay pregnant or not, has been incredibly consequential. So Idaho, for example, has closed two labor and delivery wards because they don't have enough OBGYNs to staff those labor and delivery wards. We've had women die. We've had women wait in parking lots of hospitals to go into sepsis before they can go inside and get life-saving care. There was a woman in Florida who was required to carry her baby to 37 weeks and go through the full process of delivery, even though he was not going to survive. He lived for 99 minutes and literally they said it was torture. Like it was, she was tortured. She was pregnant. She has another child. 
and her other child would like kiss her belly. And it just, can you imagine, right? He had Potter syndrome. And we've heard these stories from across the country. And this woman lives in Florida. She and her husband have never traveled outside the state and they didn't want to. We've heard of people having to travel really far distances to access care. We know that some pregnant people can't even get in to see doctors until they're past 12 weeks because you can't actually tell the difference if you're bleeding from a miscarriage or you're bleeding from medication abortion. And there are doctors who don't want to even be associated with women whose risk of miscarriage is higher, which it is in the first 12 weeks, because they don't want to be accused of providing abortion care and they wouldn't be able to prove that they didn't. And so there are pregnant people who cannot get health care until they're further away from the first trimester because of the felony penalties for providers if they're accused of providing abortion care. It's dire. And there was a story yesterday on NPR about a woman. She's one of the first women to give birth after Dobbs. She got pregnant, found out she was pregnant one month after Roe was overturned. She lives in Mississippi. She has one child. She wasn't ready for another one, was required to have another one. And the trajectory of her life, like she was going to go to cosmetology school and they were like trying to move into a better house and a better district for their kid. They live in deep poverty now. They can't afford childcare. It's just the consequences to people's lives are immense and almost immeasurable. We can talk about statistics, but the individual people's lives who have gone through the torture of being required to give birth when their baby will die after that, or people who are living in deep poverty or are stuck in abusive marriages or have more children than they can afford. Like this, it's just, it's almost immeasurable. And I think people forget that when they target abortion, they're really targeting women and people with uteruses. And that's why they're coming after birth control. That's why they're coming after IVF. That's why they're coming. That's why all these things are next is because it's not about abortion. It's about control and power over our lives. And that's what they're seeking. Sorry, that was a long rant. Yeah, no, that was, I feel like that was spot on. And it's sometimes, sometimes, not easy to forget because like we live and work in the movement and I get all the news clips in my inbox, but we made so much progress in Minnesota as you were like chief author of like very important legislation protecting bodily autonomy of patients and providers. But yeah, Jess, in terms of the how things stand, speaking of Minnesota, where we <laughs> live and work, how things stand legally in Minnesota, like has the Dobbs decision affected the law in Minnesota in, or what sort of happened in the legal space, in the realm of the law in the past year? Around the time that Dobbs came down, we had a huge win on our abortion case here in Minnesota with the district court, meaning like the trial court, the first level court striking down like pretty much all of Minnesota's abortion restrictions, not all of them, but like we, we won almost every on every claim we brought almost. And so the court struck down like a mandatory 24 hour waiting period, a physician only law, like all of these completely artificial and unnecessary restrictions on abortion care were struck down in the courts. And since that time, those laws that were struck down have been repealed along with some others, which is really important because what we're seeing is that back so let's talk about what Roe was just real quick. So Roe was basically Texas had a law criminalizing abortion care and Roe was a challenge to that law. Minnesota at that time had a law criminalizing abortion care and so did Wisconsin. After Roe, Minnesota repealed our felony abortion ban and replaced it with a bunch of restrictions. Wisconsin just kept their ban on the books, but it was unenforceable in light of Roe. So when Roe fell, 
Minnesota didn't have the ban on the books anymore, but Wisconsin did. And the fact that it was still there had this chilling effect where no one knew, is this still enforceable now that Roe's gone? It basically shut down abortion care in Wisconsin. That could have happened here had we not actually repealed the law. And so it's really important that once a law is enjoined by a court, that it also be repealed so that there's no chilling effect. There's no fear of, is this, they call it zombie law, is going to like reemerge. And if it does, what does it mean? And there's arguments that the law applies. There's arguments that it doesn't, you know, but it's scary, right? You're a provider and you're like, okay, am I going to go to prison if I keep doing my job? And so those laws actually got repealed in Minnesota. And that's fantastic. Right now, the law that got struck down but was not repealed was the two-parent notification law. That law was enjoined by the court, but it's still on the books. It was not actually repealed. And there is, an, there is a group trying to intervene right now to try to get that law put back into effect. And that litigation is ongoing. I don't think they'll be successful. Their intervention attempt was really late, like inexcusably late. Technically, that case is still ongoing. So we are very projected here one year after Dobbs and Roe was overturned, which is great, especially as we see more and more people seeking care here in Minnesota. Thank you. I also wanted to ask you about, you mentioned medication abortion being more important now in, in this landscape. What do you find are the important conversations that people are having about medication abortion or that people should know about medication abortion in this landscape? First, that medication abortion is a, it's a two-pill regimen. It is mifepristone and misoprostol. It is safer than over-the-counter Tylenol. It is safer than penicillin. It is way safer than Viagra, which you can now get in chewable tablets. My God. Yeah, now because of that line, whenever I hear the word Viagra, I hear it in like a Minnesota accent, like Viagra. Viagra, then Viagra, don't you? Yeah, despite the accent, that is true. And it's safe to end a pregnancy up to about 11 weeks. And people can access it through the mail. And so there are places that will mail abortion medication to you. And there are there are people internationally who live in other countries who have no intention of coming to the United States anytime soon, who are very openly mailing pills to people who live in states that are just, that's just information you can read on the internet, just so people know about that. And in addition, there are states where abortion is legal, where people have set up places to access medication abortion, like on the borders, right? So Illinois being one, Minnesota being one, some of the Western states and some of the East Coast states too. And you can get the mail, you can get it from a provider. And in places like Minnesota now, where we have restored abortion care to being treated like all other health care, hopefully people can start getting it from their primary care providers and from just, you can get it over the counter in other countries. It is that safe. That is the status of medication abortion in the United States. More, It's already before Roe was overturned. It was more than 50% of abortions in the country and in the state of Minnesota. It's why the anti-abortion movement is targeting medication abortion next, because they don't want people to be able to control their own bodies and their own futures. That is medication abortion. And I think it'll become increasingly used both for its covertness and states that it's banned, for its ease. You don't have to go to a clinic. You don't have to be in a clinic for a long time. And it's less expensive. And Jess, remind us the, you mentioned, Aaron, the uh, anti-abortion, like this is the next target of the anti-abortion movement. What is the status of the FDA medication abortion lawsuits? Like, that was a huge deal. 
we were lots of freaking out. And then I think it happened like what it's just now in like, where is it in the legal world? Yeah. So there's this like total nonsense lawsuit asking the FDA to do something you can't really ask the FDA to do, which is to go back like 20 years and unapproved mifepristone. And then there's questions about if that lawsuit's successful, whether and how mifepristone will be available. That was really in flux for a while. A Texas court ordered the FDA to do something that it probably had no authority to order the FDA to do. While that was going on, there was an, a competing lawsuit in Washington state by progressive attorneys general, including Keith Ellison here in Minnesota, basically saying like the FDA should not, the FDA is being too burdensome on mifepristone and it should like maintain the status quo on mifepristone until this, our lawsuit saying you're being too restrictive is over. And basically these two competing orders came out at the same time, one telling the FDA to unapprove mifepristone, the other telling the FDA to make no changes to mifepristone. The case went to the Supreme Court, which then it basically undid the Texas ruling for now. So basically mifepristone is as available as it was before all these lawsuits, but those lawsuits are still ongoing. It was like a temporary ruling putting the nonsense on hold while the litigation plays out. It's like on the one hand, you're like, oh, wow, SCOTUS did a good thing. On the other hand, the case is just so ludicrous. It shouldn't have even made it that far. And when would we, could we expect let that lawsuit to move again? Or they have to make their way through the courts. I think it could be a while. So yeah. it's hard to predict exactly what the timing will look like, but those cases were in their early stages. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I feel like lawyers have to be so patient. It's surprising to me sometimes that we have to wait for things. So one thing I wanted to touch base on before we wrap for today, two more things actually, is this sort of national discussion that we keep hearing, particularly as people are gearing up for the 2024 elections and Republicans are trying to figure out what their message is and their positions and there's discussions of like consensus, like a six-week ban, a 15-week ban, a 12-week ban. AMQ, can you illuminate for us why that's nonsense? Absolutely. But I first want to just back up a little bit because the, what the anti-abortion movement has done is really move the Overton window. Let's just take Nikki Haley, for example. She did a town hall on CN earlier this month. And she said something to the effect of, can't we all agree that everybody, that people should have their birth care and birth control taken away and that like women who have abortions shouldn't be jailed or put to death? That's the offering for the consensus. That's their middle ground. We won't kill or jail people who have abortion and people can have birth control. So I just think it's really important for us to understand what it is that they're doing is that when like they stopped using words like ban and there's like the consensus, right? And their offering for the consensus is you can have birth control and we won't put you to, the, to death if you have an abortion. So that's where their middle ground is now. That's where they've moved the Overton window to with their just like horrific policies. And I, I, they just love to ignore the horrific reality that they've created. So I think this, these 15-week bans or whatever the week bans that they're offering, they're doing that because they already know that in almost half the states, they've banned abortion completely. And the next way to go is through a national ban. 
And when you ask people, do you think abortion should be legal at this point in pregnancy and this point in pregnancy, people, there are more no's the further into pregnancy that you go. And so they've picked 15 weeks as a cutoff. Interestingly, if you ask people then, do you want Congress to make a law banning abortion at the point at which they said it should be legal? Most people will say no, because there's a difference in what they feel and what they think the law should be. But what ends up happening is that every single pregnancy is incredibly unique to the person who is pregnant, where they're pregnant, how they're pregnant, how old they are, just all of these things. And so there is no way to make specific kinds of medical care available to pregnant people and then not available to pregnant people later in their pregnancy. And it's incredibly dangerous. It endangers people's lives. If people do not have the full access to pregnancy care, including abortion care, throughout their entire pregnancy so that they can get the health care that they need when they need it, when it's most appropriate for them from their provider in their community without fear of punishment or judgment, then every pregnant person is in danger. And so the, the anti-abortion movement has created a horrific reality on the ground. And the fact is that they are not satisfied enough with only harming half of people's uteruses in this country. And they would like to control all of them. And that is why they would like to go on a 15-week ban because then they'll take it back to 10 weeks, that'll be six weeks, and that'll be a full ban. That is the goal. That has always been the goal. We have seen, they have said it publicly. They have said it privately. They have spent a billion dollars to pack court to do it. They have spent billions of dollars funneling money into state legislatures to do it. They will continue to do this. And that's why I don't want people to be fooled to be like, oh, the compromise. There's no compromising with people who do not care if you die because you are pregnant or are actually wanting to put you to death, like the South Carolina Republicans who introduced a bill subjecting women who abortions to the death penalty, right? There's no compromising with that. There's no compromise or middle ground between you have control over your health care or the government does. Yeah, excellent points. Agree to agree on everything you just said. Beautiful. All right. We are almost at time for today. And I think I'd like to, as we look at the anniversary on Saturday in one year without Roe, want to ask you both personally and professionally, what are you thinking about as what's next and what we should be thinking about and focusing on here in Minnesota? We believe in like bodily autonomy. So I we will continue to fight for people to be able to make their own choices about, as Erin always puts it, whether and when to grow your family. And so we we don't believe the state should be a part of that decision. We don't believe it. There should be coercion. We do believe that the state should help families who need help when they need it. So that's why we support, for example, like paid family medical leave and other laws like that. We will, we are continuing to look at crisis pregnancy centers. We, while we are all for people supporting people who want to give birth and to get the things they need, that should not be a coercive (laughs) situation. It should not be like you get this help on the condition that you promise not to have an abortion or that you're lied to about abortion reversal or, you know, that you, you go to a you accidentally end up in a CPC because it has the same name as an abortion clinic and it's like across the street from it. People should be able to make these choices without coercion. And so we're going to continue to fight for that. Erin? Yeah, I think it's one understanding that first they're using the anti-abortion playbook on trans people, also not the end goal, right? I think it's really making sure that we have our eye on the whole picture 
that the people that are trying to destroy our democracy are the people who are taking away our right to bodily autonomy, who are taking away the right for LGBTQ people to live freely, taking away the right for people to like have their faith and or no faith. It's really important that this, I mean, they literally have a name for it, for their playbook that's called Project Blitz. And it is to institute a conservative Christian evangelical theocracy in the United States of America. And so to continue to push back against that, because otherwise we're just continuing to play whack-a-mole. And so every time this comes up, every time a new strand of their movement forms, it's really important that we push back as one. I know that they're going to come after birth control. They're going to come after assisted fertility technology. They're going to come after, they've already gone after providers. I think they're going to continue to do that. They're going to come after the education that providers get in medical school. There's a lot of places to go. In Minnesota, we need to increase the reimbursement rates for abortion care. We need to mainstream abortion care back into mainstream health care. We need to make sure that people around us in the states, and not just around us, because sometimes the closest state is the state with the most direct flight, and that often is Minnesota for some people, that they know that they can come here because even though we know what the law is, there was just a story recently that said that people in states around Minnesota don't necessarily know. Like the message that people are getting in their lives is like abortion is banned and they don't know the particulars of the where's and the when's. And so making sure that information gets out to both people in Minnesota and across the country. That's what I see as our next step. So yes, so a lot of work ahead. We are not stopping anytime soon. Thank you both so much for being on the podcast today. We'll have to have you back soon, especially if to use one of Jess's favorite words, there's any nonsense coming out of the Supreme Court shenanigans. Also bonkers, I think. I think they're going to wrap up Pride Month with a pretty horrific decision through every creative. Well, we'll probably convene again very soon. Thanks, everyone. And we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Gender Justice Brief. This show is produced by Gunter Janel and Audrey Griegas. To keep up with our work in real time, be sure to check out the show notes for where to find us on the web, social media, and to sign up for text updates. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share to help us spread our message. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.